Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with Nachi Gupta, we'll be taking you through the July 2017 issue, identifying emergency department patients with chest pain who are at low risk for acute coronary syndromes. It's a long title, but an important topic. I know we're only a few seconds in, but let me restate that. In this episode, we'll be focusing on risk stratifying patients and determining which testing pathways are needed. And to clarify, by low risk, we mean those that are hemodynamically stable, those without concerning features on history and exam, those without immediate evidence of ischemia and EKG or elevated biomarkers, and those with less than a 1% risk of a major adverse cardiac event or death at greater than 30 days follow-up. Clearly, we're going to work on identifying a very specific population today. But before we begin, let's give credit where credit is due. This month's issue was authored by Dr. David Markle of Tacoma Emergency Care Physicians and was reviewed by Dr. Keith Merrill from Mass General and Dr. Andrew Schmidt of the University of Florida College of Medicine. Thank you, gentlemen, for tackling this topic for us and our listeners. As you can imagine, this topic is of massive importance to emergency physicians, and there's a wealth of literature exploring it. Dr. Markle reviewed over 600 articles and eight sets of national guidelines to come up with this evidence-based deep dive. We have tons to go over, so let's get started with some background. Every year in the U.S., there are roughly 8 million ED visits for chest pain, and of those, only 13 to 25% lead to the diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes, or ACS. And to be clear, by ACS, you're referring to STEMIs, NSTEMIs, and unstable angina, right? Otherwise, that number seems way too high. Exactly. Amazingly, despite guidelines recommending initial testing with EKG, history and physical, cardiac biomarkers, chest radiography, in addition to further confirmatory testing, some literature suggests that more than 2% of patients with ACS are mistakenly discharged from the ED. That 2% figure strikes me as pretty high, but if you actually go back to the literature, This figure comes from a huge prospective study by Pope and others of almost 11,000 patients, so it's unlikely to be an error from too small of a sample size. Admittedly, that study is a bit dated, as it was published back in 2000, but other more recent studies have come up with similar figures. All right, so let's move from the population level down to the cellular level. Myocardial ischemia results from a mismatch between myocardial oxygen supply and myocardial oxygen demand. And it's this imbalance that activates free nerve endings of afferent, sympathetic, and vagal fibers in the myocardium and leads to chest discomfort, or what we refer to as angina. Interestingly, because sensory afferents of many of the cervical nerves, in addition to fibers of the vagus nerve, the phrenic nerve, and intercostal nerves often overlap, anginal pain may radiate to the neck, jaw, and upper arms. This also explains why others experience shortness of breath, nausea, and other atypical symptoms. True anginal chest pain is usually due to atherosclerotic obstructive coronary artery disease which occurs once a plaque occludes more than 70% of the vessel. At this point, when oxygen demand increases, the blood flow cannot similarly increase, which results in ischemia and chest pain. When the disease has reached this stage, once a plaque ruptures or the endothelium erodes, the patient is at risk for completely or nearly complete occlusion. This is referred to as a type 1 MI. In contrast, a type 2 MI occurs secondary to the non-obstructive process. This includes many different pathologies, most notably coronary vasospasm, coronary microvascular disease, aortic stenosis, LV hypertrophy, shock, and anemia. That's a perfect lead-in for me to talk about the differential for chest pain, which is quite broad. You have to consider ischemic cardiac causes, non-ischemic cardiac causes, as well as non-cardiac causes. As I'm sure we've all had driven into us from the beginning of residency, the immediately life-threatening non-cardiac causes include aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, tension pneumothorax, perforated peptic ulcer, and Borhoff syndrome. But let's leave it at that for now since we have a lot more to talk about. All right, so let's start with the pre-hospital phase, as nearly 25% of patients with chest pain arrive by ambulance. 
Research has clearly demonstrated that pre-hospital providers can identify a STEMI without physician intervention. Further studies have shown that pre-hospital cath lab activation reduces door-to-balloon time and, more importantly, actually improves patient outcomes. Can't ignore improvements in patient outcomes. Unfortunately, only 30% of patients with ACS have a STEMI. Luckily, new EKG research is focusing on identifying EKG parameters, which may correlate with NSTEMIs, to identify a larger group of patients with ACS. And in perhaps one of the coolest things I've read recently, some EMS agencies have begun running point-of-care troponins in the pre-hospital phase. Wait, really? Yeah, can you imagine a patient rolling into your ED not only with an EKG, but also with a troponin result? That's crazy. Although it's still being tested, a recent RCT showed that this did decrease ED disposition time. I guess that's not all that surprising. But keep in mind, though, that these point-of-care troponins are less sensitive and less reliable than the traditional assays and can't ultimately rule out ACS. Clearly, outcomes research will be needed before we move this into prime time. So, to summarize this section, pre-hospital care of patients with possible ACS leads to earlier identification of STEMIs, decreased time to reperfusion, and selection of optimal treating hospital. Good stuff. All right, let's move from the pre-hospital phase to the emergency department phase of care. As always, we begin with the history and physical. One 2015 review of 58 studies found that pain radiating to both arms, pain similar to prior ischemia, or change in pattern over the past 24 hours, all had a likelihood ratio of greater than 2 for predicting ACS. In an older review, pain that radiates to the shoulders or arms, pain that is associated with exertion, or pain associated with diaphoresis were most predictive of ACS. On the flip side, pleuritic pain, positional pain, pain that is reproducible on palpation, pain that's sharp or stabbing, and pain that is not associated with exertion were found to be the least predictive historical features of the pain. Remember, though, that these features can guide your workup and in no way rule in or rule out disease. And don't forget that the elderly, diabetics, and women tend to present with atypical symptoms. Great point. It should also be noted that the classic cardiac risk factors of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, family history of CAD are not independently predictive of ACS in patients presenting to the ED with chest pain. However, thanks to one prospective analysis of almost 11,000 patients, in patients less than 40, the presence of zero of these risk factors had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.17 for ACS, and the presence of four or more risk factors had a positive likelihood ratio of 7.39. Not bad. Moving on to the physical exam, hypotension, a new murmur of mitral regurgitation, and the presence of a third heart sound all increase the likelihood of ACS, whereas chest pain that's reproducible on palpation has a likelihood ratio of 0.28 for ACS. I think the take-home point from this section is pretty clear. The physical exam alone cannot rule in or rule out ACS, and it's probably most helpful for identifying other causes of chest pain, like unilateral leg swelling for PE, a pulse differential for aortic dissection, a new murmur of aortic regurgitation, and so on and so forth. All right, so if we can't rely on the physical, we'll need some pretty good diagnostic studies, which luckily I think we have. For patients with suspected ACS, an EKG should be obtained within 10 minutes of arrival. And even if the patient arrives via ambulance, an initial EKG is a must. In one small study, 12.5% of pre-hospital EKGs had clinically significant abnormalities that were not present on the ED EKG. This led to management changes almost two-thirds of the time. Clearly, this must be part of your practice. I suspect one of the first things we're looking for in an EKG are any signs of a STEMI. A STEMI, or ST elevation of greater than 1 millimeter or 0.1 millivolt in two or more contiguous leads, signifies likely transmural ischemia from acute coronary occlusion. Similarly, new horizontal or downsloping ST depression of 0.5 millimeters or more and T-wave inversion of 1 millimeter or more in two or more contiguous leads also indicates likely ischemia. These findings are indicative of subendocardial ischemia as opposed to the transmural ischemia we just mentioned. 
And if a single EKG is not diagnostic and the patient's symptoms persist, serial EKGs every 5 to 10 minutes are recommended. Great point. Unlike biomarkers that hang around for some time, EKGs are static, single measurements in time. So multiple EKGs are critical when you have real concern to evaluate for dynamic changes. The reality is, though, that EKG reading is difficult and often the findings are subtle. In one study, 11% of patients with missed ACS had subtle 1-2mm to 2 millimeter ST elevations. And to make matters even more ambiguous, in a study by Nolman et al. of over 2,000 patients, even common nonspecific EKG changes can confer increased likelihood of a MACE or a major cardiac event at 30 days. Makes you wonder, is there a risk even with a normal EKG? Luckily for you and our listeners, that's already been addressed. In a prospective study of 400,000 patients with MI, 7.9% had a normal EKG. And in a separate study, 5% of patients with chest pain and a normal EKG had a mace within 30 days. Man, you really can't win them all. And our job is quite hard. True, but luckily we have more than just an EKG. We also have cardiac biomarkers, which are the most objective test of myocardial injury. I'm pretty sure we're all up to date on this, but CKMB is out and it's just troponin now. Right. Troponins are detectable within three hours of ED arrival in nearly all patients with myocardial injury, regardless of when the symptoms began. For this reason, a single negative troponin may be sufficient if symptoms began six to eight hours prior to ED arrival. Similarly, for the same reason, many guidelines suggest a second troponin three to six hours after the patient arrives to truly catch everybody who has an event. But let me clarify, this approach will catch all STEMIs and NSTEMIs, but will miss unstable angina, which is purely a clinical diagnosis. Excellent point. Although troponins are a more specific test than the antiquated CKMB, it may also be elevated in other conditions. In fact, in one observational study of 615 patients, an elevated troponin had a positive predictive value for ACS of 56%. Important non-ischemic conditions leading to an elevated troponin include heart failure, PE, CKD, and sepsis. With this in mind, however, you can increase the specificity of an elevated troponin for ACS by checking a delta troponin. The National Academy of Clinical Biochemistry recommends a dynamic change of 20% or more to define an MI in patients with a baseline elevated troponin. This change can be uptrending or downtrending. Serial troponins and serial EKGs, both critically important. All right, so now that we've discussed collecting data, let's start actually using it. There are many scores for early risk stratification, which we'll go through one by one. First up, we have the Timmy score. The TIMI score was designed to predict 14-day mortality in patients with confirmed NSTEMIs or unstable angina, but was later validated for ED use. The TIMI score assigns one point for each of the following, age 65 or older, greater than three risk factors, known coronary artery disease with 50% stenosis or more, aspirin use in the last seven days, two or more episodes of severe angina, ST depression or elevation of 0.5 millimeters or more, and a positive biomarker. Each TIMI component is associated with a certain degree of risk. However, in one meta-analysis, even patients with a TIMI score of zero still had a 1.8 30-day incidence of cardiac events. Many consider this unacceptably high. There were also two observational trials, ASPECT and ADEPT, which included serial biomarkers to increase the accuracy of the TIMI score. Both modified scores had greater than 99% sensitivity and nearly 100% negative predictive values. We won't go through them more, but make sure to check out mdcalc.com for an easy-to-use calculator. Perhaps my favorite score is up next, the heart score. The heart score was developed specifically for risk stratification of patients with undifferentiated chest pain. The heart score incorporates a 0-2 to point scale for each of the following components. History, EKG, age, cardiac risk factors, and troponin levels. In case you missed it, the components of the score spell out the word heart. Patients who have a low-risk heart score have a 0.9 to 1.7% risk of MACE at six weeks follow-up. 
And just as with the Timmy score, adding serial biomarkers to the heart score also increases accuracy. Adding biomarkers at 0, 4, and 6 hours, you approach a sensitivity and negative predictive value of almost 100%. You can't ask for much better than that. Again, make sure to head over to mdcalc.com for an easy-to-use calculator. Or even better, install the app and have it immediately available at the bedside so you can go through it with your patients. The next two rules aren't used as frequently, so I'll just mention them briefly. The Vancouver chest pain rule was initially derived using CKMB. Its sensitivity and negative predictive values fall short of the other rules. Those figures improve if you use the troponin, but still fall short of the heart and Timmy scores. And the last score to mention is the North American chest pain rule. Briefly, this rule was derived to identify patients suitable for early discharge with 100% sensitivity. However, validation studies haven't found that it identifies a large enough population to make it clinically useful. The next test to discuss is the chest x-ray. Chest radiography is a must for patients with possible ACS. In one study of over 500 patients, although 90% of radiographs were normal, 2.1% had abnormalities that required acute intervention. Important abnormalities included pulmonary edema, consolidation, and pleural effusions. I think it's safe to say that there is strong evidence to support the routine use of chest x-rays, EKGs, and troponins to rule out ACS. The same, however, cannot be said for confirmatory testing. Confirmatory testing is used to identify obstructive CAD by either direct or indirect visualization. The rationale for performing these tests is based on well-established research showing that patients with abnormal tests are at higher risk for MI and MACE. Confirmatory testing takes many forms, including exercise EKGs, exercise or chemical myocardial perfusion imaging, rest or stress echoes, cardiac MRI, and coronary CTA, or CCTA. Table 4 lists the sensitivity and specificity for detecting CAD with 50% or greater stenosis of all of these tests, but let me specifically highlight the CCTA. CCTA has a sensitivity of 93 to 97% and a specificity of 80 to 90%, clearly the best performance characteristics of all these confirmatory tests. So logically, if serial troponins, a chest x-ray, and EKGs can catch almost all patients with STEMIs and NSTEMIs, the value of a confirmatory test would be to identify the population with unstable angina. Unfortunately, this hasn't panned out for several important reasons which are worth going through. First, obstructive CAD identified on testing is not necessarily the cause of the patient's pain. Second, in patients with normal EKGs and negative biomarkers, the yield of such tests is incredibly low. Third, false positive stress tests are very common, as only a third of patients with abnormal stress tests who are referred for angiography have clinically significant obstructive CAD. And last, and most importantly, many well-done observational studies suggest that confirmatory testing does not provide any incremental improvement in outcomes in patients with normal or non-diagnostic EKGs and negative biomarkers. That last point is a key. There's no improvement in outcomes with confirmatory testing in this population. This finding was further supported by a retrospective study of 420,000 ED visits that showed not only no difference in MI at 7 and 180-day follow-up, but also higher rates of cardiac cath, which as we all know, comes with its own inherent risk. Risks without clinical benefit, the exact opposite of what we all strive for in medicine. And Dr. Markle does dive a bit deeper into CCTA, and I think he has the right to do so, as its use is dramatically increasing. From 2006 to 2013, CCTA use increased 434% in this population. And it may be for good reason. In one meta-analysis, a normal CCTA had a likelihood ratio of MACE at 20 months of 0.008, Another showed that CCTA not only decreased ED length of stay, but also decreased cost as compared to the other methods of confirmatory testing. These gains are associated with some risk, as those who had a CCTA had a 2.1% higher rate of invasive cardiac cath and a 2% higher rate of revascularization without any difference in frequency of MACE at follow-up. We're big into summaries in this episode, so let me summarize. 
Although current guidelines recommend confirmatory testing within 72 hours for those with normal serial EKGs and negative troponins, evidence suggests that confirmatory testing adds little to no additional benefit for patients at low risk for MACE. Great. And that's really a big take home for this entire article. But we won't just stop this episode there. So what should you do with patients who you've decided are low risk for ACS or a MACE? Like most pathologies, the first-line therapy is primary prevention and lifestyle modification. In a meta-analysis of nearly 100,000 patients, aspirin was associated with a 12% reduction in serious vascular events. Of course, the clinician must weigh this against the risk of bleeding. The U.S. Preventative Task Force has pretty specific guidelines for its use, although the evidence is grade B and C. Initiation of antihypertensives from the ED is also safe and effective in at-risk populations, especially those with markedly elevated blood pressures who can't get prompt follow-up. Keep in mind, though, that this is a consensus recommendation and not an evidence-based recommendation. The next topic to touch on are the special populations. We touched on them before, but let's go a bit deeper. The first special population is women. As compared with men of the same age, women have an overall lower prevalence of obstructive CAD, but a higher likelihood of atypical symptoms. This leads to a higher likelihood of being discharged with a missed MI. The EKG criteria for detection of an MI are also different in women. In one study of 1,223 volunteers, the upper limit of normal J-point elevation in women is lower than that in men. Complicating matters even worse, exercise stress testing is less accurate in women. For example, in one meta-analysis, exercise myocardial perfusion imaging for the detection of CAD in women had a sensitivity of 78% compared to 85% in men. That's a substantial difference. Young patients are another important special population. In one study, the prevalence of ACS in those under 40 was less than 2%. Surprisingly though, 4-8% of MI still occurred in this group. That's pretty worrisome. Luckily, we can use similar criteria to determine who can safely be discharged. In one observational study, even when cardiac risk factors are present, if the EKG is normal and the initial cardiac biomarker is normal, the risk of ACS or MACE at 30 days follow-up was 0.14%. And the elderly are another important special population. Patients 75 and over have an increased incidence, prevalence, and severity of CAD and ACS, and they often have atypical and nonspecific symptoms. Complicating the workup, the EKG is less accurate and an elevated troponin is less specific for an MI in the elderly. And lastly, medical comorbidities often limit exercise, which limits confirmatory testing. Clearly a very high risk and difficult population to treat. The last population to touch on in this episode are those with known CAD. A known diagnosis of CAD confers a likelihood ratio of 2.0 for ACS. Those with known CAD often have baseline EKG abnormalities, which makes their workup more challenging. Also, as we touched on during the risk stratification section, many with known CAD may already be at intermediate or high risk, which may prompt further evaluation and confirmatory testing. In those with known CAD, the confirmatory test of choice is often myocardial perfusion imaging to localize potential myocardial ischemia. But what about those who come in having had confirmatory testing in the not-so-distant past? Can we use that data as part of our evaluation? Honestly, if the person's having new chest pain, the answer is unclear. Are recent normal results reassuring? Sure, they might be, but that hardly rules out ACS. The annual rate of MI or cardiac death after confirmatory testing varies quite a bit. In those with a negative stress, the annual rate of MI or cardiac death is 0.8%. In those with a pharmacologic myocardial perfusion imaging, the rate doubles to 1.78%. So although it's nice to have normal confirmatory imaging, don't be falsely reassured if the story concerns you. We've said it before, and I'm sure we'll say it again. Our jobs are really hard. The second to last topic are the controversies in cutting edge, the first of which are the newly approved high-sensitivity troponin TSA, 
which was just approved this January. In early studies, the troponin T assay led to earlier diagnosis of MI, which may decrease length of stay and time to disposition. Also, as the sensitivity increases, so does a negative predictive value, which will improve our ability to risk stratify. Interestingly, in one prospective study of over 1,100 patients, using the high-sensitivity troponin increased the diagnosis of NSTEMI by 22% and decreased the diagnosis of unstable angina by 19%. Of course, as we catch more and more patients with elevated high-sensitivity troponins, we may have to rely even more on the delta troponin value, as more patients not suffering from true ACS may too have an elevated troponin. The next technology I'm honestly quite excited about. It's the triple rule-out CT. This study combines a CT angio of the coronary arteries, the pulmonary arteries, and the aorta, evaluating for CAD, PE, and aortic dissection simultaneously. Of course, such a thorough exam comes with some risks, specifically 38 milliliters of contrast and 4.84 millisieverts of radiation. Further studies are still needed to define which populations would benefit from such a study in the ED. Wow, that sounds amazing. You can literally rule out three deadly pathologies with a single test. That's wild. All right, so let's close this episode out with disposition. As we've said a few times, most patients who present with chest pain who are hemodynamically stable, have normal serial EKGs, and normal serial biomarkers can safely be discharged and do not benefit from confirmatory testing, despite guidelines recommending to do so. Those at intermediate to high risk based on any of the validated scoring systems require further workup and likely admission or observation safe for further testing. As our scoring systems improve, many institutions are moving to dedicated chest pain workup pathways for accelerated diagnosis and disposition. Of course, such pathways will vary from institution to institution based on resource availability and the patient population. All right, so that wraps up the July issue of Emergency Medicine Practice. Before we officially sign out for this month, let's summarize some of the key points from this month's episode. EMS providers can accurately detect STEMIs and determine appropriate destination, reducing door-to-balloon times and improving outcomes. Be on the lookout for new research with pre-hospital troponins. Rely on the history and physical to rule out other dangerous conditions. In addition, pain radiating to the bilateral arms, pain similar to prior ischemia, and the change in pattern of the pain over the past 24 hours were the most helpful historical features for predicting ACS. At a minimum, patients with concern for ACS require an EKG, troponin, and a chest x-ray, in addition to thorough history and physical. Both the TIMI and the HEART scores are great tools for risk stratifying patients in the ED. Make sure to check out the MDCalc app, which can be used to calculate the scores easily at the patient's bedside. The current recommendations for confirmatory testing in those that are low risk is not supported by the current body of literature. The role of CCTA, and that's coronary CTA, needs to be further elucidated as it's a potentially powerful tool, readily available, and conveys minimal, although not negligible, risk. Be cautious in women the elderly, and diabetics, as they often present with atypical symptoms for ACS. The role of the high-sensitivity troponin and the triple rule-out CT requires further study, but both are powerful tools which may soon be readily available. All right, so that's it for the July 2017 episode of Amplify. Thanks for listening. And for those of you who attended the Clinical Decision-Making and Emergency Medicine Conference in Ponte Vedra last week, we hope you had as much fun as we did and maybe even learned a thing or two. There was tons of great evidence presented by lots of entertaining speakers. And for those of you who couldn't be there, make sure to follow the at ebmedicine handle on Twitter. Scroll back and take a look at some of the live conference tweets to get a sense of what you missed. Be sure to sign up early for next year's conference, which is bound to be even better.
And for all our resident listeners out there, as always, don't forget that resident issues of EM practice are totally free. If you're a resident, sign up now by going to ebmedicine.net. Oh, and while we have you signing up for things, don't forget to subscribe to Amplify if you haven't already done so, so that each episode is automatically downloaded on the first of each month when it's released. Talk to you all soon. We're out.